Well, today is Christ the King Sunday, my least favorite day on the church calendar. I have a number of issues with the day. First of all, I'm not quite sure what it means to have a king and to get up and talk for 20 minutes about how Christ is king doesn't resonate with me. I've never had one. And somehow Christ the president doesn't quite capture it. Whatever Jesus is, he's not president, okay? Um, also, it's very young. It's less than 100 years old. It was instituted in 1925, so it's almost right at 100 years old. At the end of World War I, the Pope said, whoa, wait a minute, we just about killed everybody here. Let's uh, chill out and get ourselves together. Remember, he says to Europe, we're all Christians. So if we say Jesus is our king, Christ is our king, then maybe we won't get into wars between these political powers here, that our true loyalty is to Christ. Well, it was a different time and a different age. The closing days of Christian Europe. My favorite example of what I mean by that comes with Veterans Day or Armistice Day. What day is Veterans Day? November 11th. It's also the feast day of St. Martin of Tours, the patron saint of soldiers. St. Martin lived in the 300s. He was a soldier. His father had been a soldier in the Roman army. He was, uh, had become a Christian. The story goes that uh, as he was traveling one day, he came across a beggar who was freezing in the cold. He didn't have anything to wear. And so St. Martin took off his coat, took his sword and cut it in half and gave the other half to the beggar. And that night he had a dream that he saw Jesus wearing his cape, wearing that half cape that he'd given to the beggar. Make of that dream what you will. Maybe it was a vision from God. Maybe it was just a weird dream. But it had a major impact on his life that he had served Jesus by giving this beggar a cloak. He left the army, founded the first monastic order in Western Europe, which is kind of big itself, and then became a bishop in France. And what he did as bishop is important. He moved Christianity out of the city and began evangelizing the rural areas. Up till this time, Christianity had been a very urban religion. But he went out into the countryside um, evangelizing the rural areas. In fact, that word pagan originally meant people who live out in the country because they hadn't heard the gospel. And because he evangelized those people, he became loved by the French people. Because he was a soldier, um, uh, different military units would have a, a relic of that red coat, cloak, cape, and, and keep it in some of the, 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 the uh, Latin word for cape was capella, and they would keep it in a special tent they called the chapel, where the relic of the cape was, and the priest who was in charge of the chapel was called the chaplain because they were in charge of the, the priest, uh, of, that, of that relic. Um, but he became, became very deeply loved in France. And in a different time, in a different age, the leaders of Europe, as they gather and say, when do we declare this truth to, truth to be in effect? You have to have a, a time limit in the future so everybody gets the news. Uh, what day shall we pick? And they said, well, obviously, November 11th is the feast day of St. Martin the patron saint of soldiers. It was a different time and a different age. I don't think that NATO would take saints' days into consideration these days. I don't think it would dawn on them. And of course, I don't need to point out to you that this plan didn't work. So there's the sadness in, the, in, the, in, in knowing where the story, where the day comes from, that, that that plan didn't work. It's also sad 
thinking about the dechristianization of Europe. So it's, there's a heaviness to it, at least in my mind. Um, that feast day was moved to the last Sunday of the year, only in 1969, as a result of Vatican II. And so, unfortunately, we did so much with what came out of Vatican II, we went along with it as Anglicans, and in 1979 in the United States began recognizing it. And I'll, I don't like liturgical changes that are younger than I am. I mean, if there's a feast day on the church calendar that's younger than me, um, it just strikes me as inappropriate. I'm not sure why we need to scramble up the lectionary and the colics in the weeks preceding Advent just because of what some Pope said. Especially because of what some Pope said, Vatican II. I remind you, the Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in this realm. It says so right in the prayer book, page 787, Book of Common Prayer, 2019, page 787, the Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in this realm. Well, you may have picked up by now that I'm not fond of it which is why I assigned the sermon today to myself as a matter of spiritual discipline to say I don't like it but I'm going to bow to the authority that I've been presented with and preach on Christ the King. I certainly have no problem acknowledging Christ as King and our readings today focus on the kingship of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah in the Old Testament gives us a lament. He proclaims a woe that the human kings of Israel have failed utterly in ruling the people. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. You haven't taken care of my people, so I'll take care of you. It's very common for kings to be portrayed as shepherds in the ancient Near East. You might bring to mind a picture of a pharaoh and they're usually standing there like this and they've got two their arms crossed they've got two sticks in their hands one is a fly swatter the other is a shepherd's crook the image of the king as shepherd is all over the ancient near east and so it would be clear to the original readers what god is saying here that the human kings have failed and anyone who knew their history would know that the human kings had failed at first god had been their king but then the people said, we want a human king. It's kind of embarrassing not having a king. People ask us, who's your king around here? And we say, well, we don't really have one. It'd be nice to say who our king was. Besides, we want to be like all the other countries. Everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? And the result is a civil war. Samuel anoints two men at two different times to be king, Saul and David, and the first result is a civil war. And ever since then, the human kings had utterly failed the Hebrew people. They've been scattered, and God promises to return as king. He says in verse 3, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Well, this sounds like a real nation. 
a real country with a capital and borders and all that kind of stuff and laws and money and all that kind of stuff. This coming king sounds like a political leader, a military leader. And so by the time we get to the time of Jesus, there was this growing belief that there would be a Messiah coming who would drive out the Romans, other abusive shepherds. And here we see this Messiah arriving and being enthroned, the enthronement of the king, the Messiah, the Christ. But it's a very different picture than was expected. His palace is on a hill called the Skull. His crown is a crown of thorns. His royal robes are being gambled for at the foot of the, of the, foot, at the foot of his throne. His royal courtiers are two thieves, two criminals. And his throne, of course, is a cross. Crucifixion was an act intentionally designed and chosen by the oppressive Romans to humiliate and remove all dignity from those who refused to bend the knee to the Roman emperor. The cross was a great symbol of imperial power. Crucifixion itself was extremely gruesome. I needn't go into the details. I can tell you that the Latin writer Cicero wrote that uh, we, don't, you won't, we don't use the word cross in conversation because it reminds us of the gruesome scenes that we've seen. Polite people don't mention it in polite conversation. The historian Tom Holland in his recent book Dominion points out the dramatic irony of the symbol of humiliation, defeat, and loss to Rome and the symbol of imperial power had become the chief symbol of a religion that would eventually conquer the Roman Empire not through force, but through persuasion, taking as its symbol a model of humiliation and defeat and loss and completely subverting the meaning of the symbol. Well, this is such a rich passage. There's so much here to talk about. It opens with Jesus being mocked and these mockers echoing the taunts of Satan and his temptation. If you are the son of God, That's how Satan had mocked Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. If you are the son of God, cast yourself down. The angels will catch you. Taunting questions from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that must have haunted his ministry throughout his entire life and he hears them hanging on the cross. If you are the son of God, save yourself. Yet he responds, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I want to speak to you about these two royal courtiers, the two criminals on either side of Jesus, one on the left and one on the right. Jesus hangs on this cross, throne of a cross, with the inscription posted above his head, this is the king of the Jews. The first of these criminals mocks Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Again, that mocking, taunting question. If you are the son of God, if you are the Messiah, the Christ, then save yourself. And while you're doing that, save us. Seems a reasonable thing to say, doesn't it? If you are the Messiah, if you're the king proclaimed on the sign nailed to the cross above your head, if that's you, then save yourself. Get us down from here and we'll go chase the Romans out of here. Save yourself, save others. It would never have dawned on this criminal that the only way that Jesus could save others in any meaningful sense was to refuse to save himself. You know, I really can't blame the criminal because it boggles my mind as well. 
The second criminal rebukes the first criminal, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The second criminal is doing a good job of preaching the law. We are condemned. We deserve death. He does a good job of preaching the law, but he receives the grace of the gospel because he finds grace and acceptance from Jesus. The criminal continues, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What better picture of God's grace can you imagine than this scene right before the death of Jesus? Here's a man who's a thief, a criminal, who despises the law of God, he despises the law of man. He has no chance to become a better person, to atone for his crimes, to make restitution to his victims, to devote himself to prayer, to pay penance for his sins, to be baptized to even attend one church service. And what more vivid picture of God's grace that in Jesus' dying moments, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a reminder of one of Martin Luther's clever phrases. He says, the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sins. The only thing we contribute to the process of salvation are the sins we bring to be forgiven. Another preacher, a man named Alistair Begg, uses this illustration. He does it better. You can find it on YouTube. But he asks that age-old evangelistic question. If, if you were to die today and you arrived at heaven's gate, what would you say if you wanted to go in? It's an analogy, okay? So don't worry about it. Okay. It's, it's, it's that cartoon picture, okay? That's what we're talking about. I'm not te- giving you a theology lecture. Okay, it's, it's the cartoon picture. And he, he says, I advise you, he says, not to give a first person answer. In other words, if the first thing you say is I, I advise you to rethink that. Even if I put my faith in Jesus, um, rethink that because it should be a third person answer. And the first word should be he. Because Christ did this for me. Christ saved me. Christ paid the price for my sins. He redeemed me. His grace brought me here. He forgave me. And he goes on to say, I think about that kind of cartoon picture when I think about that thief on the cross who arrives at that portal of heaven. And imagine the interview process. The angel says, you aren't on our list of expected arrivals for today. What are you doing here? And the criminal says, I'm really not doing anything here. I'm just here. Okay. The angel says, let me get my supervisor. Brings out the supervisor. The supervisor says, not on the list. We weren't expecting you. Um, well, why are you here? He says, I don't know. Um, well, let's start at the beginning. Um, are you at peace with God? He says, I don't know. He says, well, have, have you been justified by faith in Christ? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And finally the angel says, well, do you know anything? And the criminal says, well, yeah. And the supervisor says, well, what do you know? 
And the criminal says, all I know is the man on the middle cross says I can come here. That's all he knows. He has no depth of theology. He has no depth of biblical training. All he knows is that the man on the middle cross says he can come. Mr. Kirby, I'd like to show that image on the screen. I've shown this to you again, but it's been a few years, I hope. As you may be aware, there are various versions of the cross. This is one that's very common in Orthodox Christianity, meaning Eastern Orthodox Christianity. The Russian Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Churches, um, it's oftentimes just called the Orthodox Cross. It looks like this. It's got the, up here is the sign nailed to the cross. It says the King of the, the Jews. Here, of course, is the cross shape. And the footrest down here is always at a slant. And the point is that it's pointing to the two thieves on the other side, one of whom rejects Christ and one of whom accepts Christ. And it's a reminder that when we come to the cross, we're faced with a decision. Do we accept or reject what's happening on that cross? The cross forces us to a decision. Once we understand what we're being asked, we can't ignore that decision. Like the criminal, we're condemned under the law, but we can find grace in Jesus because Jesus will accept you and the man on the middle cross will say you can come. In Jesus' name, amen.